Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode the story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Tax season is approaching, bringing potential extra cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. This episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor. Featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com. That's Alienware.com slash deals. Welcome to a special episode of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. Matt, we made it back from our time on the road. Yeah, we went all over the place. Uh, Boston, we were in Arlington, right over by D.C., uh, Philly, uh, Brooklyn, and even here in Atlanta. Yeah, we met so many amazing people. We want to thank everyone who came to check out the show. Uh, don't be strangers. Feel free to write to us. At, yeah, especially those of you. We actually hung out with some people after shows yeah, and stuff. We got yeah. to meet some people. It was yeah. great. Had a great uh Hey, was it grilled cheese? Yeah, it was a grilled cheese. Yeah. I had oh. tomato and bacon on mine. <laughs> <laughs> so we we had a ton of adventures and we recorded the show. What you're about to hear, folks, is the uh, – let's see. This is us in Atlanta, right? This is our hometown show? Absolutely. This This one just – it turned out really well. It's that home field advantage, I think. <laughs> We'll see. Well, no spoilers, but here we have it, uh, the Atlanta version of our Stuff They Want You Know live tour. Let us know what you think. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome. Oh my gosh. You guys, we did it. We came to our hometown and, and, and a crowd showed up to see us live. How are you doing? Yeah? Yeah? 
It's Sunday. <laughs> it is. All right. We had to check earlier. We have no idea what day it is at yeah, this point. It's been a bit of a blur. It's been a bit of a it's been a bit of a blur, but we want to thank you so much for coming out. It is astonishing to us to record in our hometown live. Now we this is this is the last show of our tour and we saved it for you for Atlanta. I like your hat, by the way. Uh, and we went uh, we went to a bunch of places, really. Yeah, you know? we did. Um, my favorite highlight of the tour was having a, a lobster roll at a dive bar in uh, <laughs> Boston. Because that's a thing. They're just lousy with lobsters there. Yeah. And they're all pretty delicious. Bar. Yeah. And then yesterday, I, uh, I almost died. I, I choked on a bone from a fish um, at a Thai restaurant <laughs> and had a panic attack. But these guys got me through it. And now here I am to be with you fine people. Yeah. yeah. We, we played a show in Arlington at this old theater. And it was beautiful because all of the seats were... Or like old office chairs that have been just discarded by someone, but they just purchased them all or found them on the side of the road and just filled the entire theater with them. And then there were remnants, like there were weird piles of them just in corners yeah. and stuff. So. And there were weird tables. It looked like we were going to do a meeting for the United Nations or yeah, something. Yeah, in, it was, uh, it's like one of those, what, like the Buckhead Theater, I forget, not the Buckhead yeah, Theater. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the old, like the, the plaza newer, or something. One of the newer movie theaters that actually has food there too. So uh-huh. you're sitting in these seats and ordering food it was just an odd experience was it was it as odd as the one in um boston where there was a kids parkour class going on outside of our which was great for real it was fantastic those kids have moves yeah we we tried to hang with them yeah Uh, they weren't having it they weren't having it but it was like literally open the door to the dressing room and there's just like these little tiny midget people just zooming by like on like tires and like you know bars and stuff yeah. it was pretty wild but they it was, did actually say parkour while they were doing yeah, things yeah mm-hmm. but now we're in a place called terminal west which rules <laughs> uh, do, you, do you guys ever come out here to see shows like yeah. music yeah. awesome live yes. shows we're we're on that stage right now <laughs> oh boy uh oh and we're supposed to do a show that's why we're here yes. right okay. so let's let's get started yeah 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 <clears throat> Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. And they call me Ben. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. And we're joined also by our super producer, uh, Paul Mission That's Control right. Deccan. Paul Mission Control Deccan. Oh, hey, will you stand audience. up, Paul? Please Come let on. us embarrass you. Yes, this guy makes our guy. show happen. Look at that good this boy. This guy makes yes. our show happen. He, uh, we continually cajole him to get on microphone with us. And he continually refuses us. I know, yeah. I know, I know. But uh, one day. But this... and he's he's surrounded by a lot of other house stuff works. Uh, oh, I see you. Special okay. people over there. Yeah. I see them. I see some celebrities in the crowd. Can I get your autograph later, guys? I don't want to make it weird, but you no. Made it, you, okay, you, you, you I made, made it, it weird. You made it weird. All right. Well, well, yes. Paul Mission Control Decant. Uh, we're finally back and we were on the road for a while and we had these bizarre adventures roaming through New England, roaming through uh, historic places. Every city we have been to, uh, including Atlanta, has, has a few things in common, right? There's a, there's a bunch of graffiti everywhere. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, there's a regional Federal Reserve Bank, which... In every city we went to. In every single one. And when we were thinking about our show, uh, we... We started, uh, we started brainstorming, and we were we were thinking about hidden things, yes. signs, symbols, secret languages, and we were wondering how they came to be, and why. 
and, and what they mean, and uh, more so, why do some of the world's most powerful, influential institutions use secret signs, codes, signals, languages every year, every month, every week, every day? Ben, every are you minute? talking about the shadowy organization that operates out of that five-sided buildings over near Arlington, Virginia, where we were? That has absolutely nothing to do with pentagrams? <laughs> I mean, I mean, there, there are a lot of buildings with five sides. I hear it has a subway and a Best Buy. Um, oh, so, yeah. you know, it's true. They're, the branding is part of it as well. Right, right. It's true. Well, you know, Matt, uh, the Pentagon is arguably involved. Okay. But that, that comes later, I think, right? I will wait then. Do we want to call it foreshadowing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so we'll call it foreshadowing. So we are hoping that you join us today as we dive into the strange stories of these signs, languages, signals, and symbols that allegedly influence us everywhere we go. And the institutions, or one of them anyway, that just loves them. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, okay, so this is a modern city. Atlanta is a pretty big city. And every time you walk through any modern city in the U.S. or abroad, we are inundated with literally millions of images, of messages, right? And they're non-consensual. You don't wake up in the morning and agree to see 12,000 billboards. You just have to go do something. And we had a time uh, a while back, Matt, you and I years ago, uh, had, a, had yeah. a fool's errand where we said, you know what, we're going to wake up tomorrow, we're going to count every single advertisement that we see during the day. And we, we really did it, and we got to about 200 or so. I think both of us maxed out around that range, 200, 300 range. I gave up at 11.35 a.m. Yeah, it was rough. Um, and, and it's just crazy. And a lot of it's logos that are kind of unassuming that you just notice on the side or on somebody's shirt or a hat, sir, awesome shirt. <laughs> um, and it could just be as simple as a letter or something like that. Or like if it's a logo, you look at something like, we all know this, the FedEx logo that has that secret arrow in there or the Amazon logo that also has a not-so-secret arrow. It's got, a, it's got a smile that starts at where? Starts at, like, A. Yeah. And it goes to Z. Let you know you can get everything online. Right. See, that all, all you need is a tiny little symbol that lets you know exactly what something yeah. is, and, and you don't have to communicate with words beyond that. And the smile just lets you know that everything's cool. Amazon is a completely innocuous organization sure. that just means yeah. the best for you and it's wants you to have dory. goods and services yeah. and be able to buy your laundry detergent with the push of a button. It's a fantastic company. 100%. Yeah. I'm a fan. We're getting those drones for you, says Jeff Bezos. Yeah. But, but this, this is weird because it goes beyond advertisements. There is a great deal of money and time spent to create logos that, you know, FedEx has letters in it, right? Amazon also has letters in it. But the parts of our brain that are being engaged when we see these logos are nonverbal things. They're not, they're not the language part of our brain, you know? Uh, what they are instead are uh, imagistic, symbolic things. And they're meant to connect with you like on an emotional kind of primordial yeah. level. Yeah, 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 absolutely, a primal level. And we thought, how far does this go, right? Yeah. Right? We've all seen Mad Men or read the Wikipedia entries about it, I'm sure. So, so we know that advertising is historically a huge industry, but the idea of secret symbols, secret signs, secret languages goes far beyond advertising. It predates it. We wanted to find an example for you, and we wanted to start with something that used to be alarmingly, cartoonishly common. It's something you may not have heard of, 
in the modern day, the name sounds a bit silly, but here we go. It's Hobo Code. Hobo Code. There you go. You got to enunciate it because we had a couple shows where people didn't know what we were saying. Hobo Code. Yeah. So uh, here's the thing. The... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it does sound kind of like it could be like the name of like some kind of prog band's right. concept album or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, some, kind, some kind of like concept EP or something. Mm-hmm. Hobo code. Yeah. But no, it's not. It's actually a, an entire uh, kind of cryptographic language. Mm-hmm. Um, and it surrounds the world of, of the hobo, which you may know today as being a bit of a pejorative or something you might say to your you know, significant <clears throat> other if they're not dressed well yeah, or something but it's, like that. It, it's you know? weird. It's an anachronistic. Like Some of us are here with our significant others. If you're ever in a fight with them and you call them a hobo, then they're just like out of the argument. Yeah, they no. don't understand what's I mean, going those on. Those are fighting why, words. Why would you say that? Yeah, they're like, what year is it? Tim. I apologize if anyone here is named Tim. But the, uh, the idea of this goes back to a part of uh, American history that we don't often talk about outside of maybe middle school, high school, the Great Depression. Uh, the, the world of the hobo, itinerant workers without homes who had to leave their communities due to the fact that there were no means of sustainable employment, this world is often romanticized nowadays, right? You got the, you got the, the guy with the, the bindle, the, the, the stick, stick with yeah. the bag and like mm-hmm. the crumpled hat, maybe a pipe or something. Trusty dog. Yeah, riding the rails, not a care in the world, only kind of a lot of cares in the world. Because the world, as it turns out, it was a terrifying, terrifying place. Yes. Um, yeah. And they find themselves in that position, not uh, of any real action that they took, perhaps. It's something that was kind of forced on them. If you don't have a home, then this is, this is kind of what you do. And it's a, it's a brutal and demanding existence And the problem with this is we don't know too much about this community because it was largely an oral tradition. These people weren't buying wings of museums. They weren't financing some sort of scholarship program. You can find some interviews. You can find a couple of books by some uh, intrepid journalists, and you can hear some... uh, I'll say it, creepy songs that stayed in the American songbook. They, they might actually know Rock Candy Mountain. Oh, yeah, yeah. No one up north does. Nobody knows this song. Do, do, people in this audience know Rock Candy Mountain. Think Rock Candy Mountain. Okay. So, yeah, tell them, tell them. Okay, so there's uh, the, the song, the version of it you hear has uh, one verse excised from, from what we'll typically play on, uh, on a, you know, blue... Uh, bluegrass kind of station. Yes, yes. The last verse is, it turns out the entire song is a message from a hobo to a young runaway child. And the last verse is the child saying, I am not going to let you take, what'd you call it, Noel? Hobo? Hobo Heaven? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, that's what the big rock candy mountain yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, but no, that, now, now you're make, it, it makes it sound like hobos were like evil or something. That's not true. No, they were, just, is, they were just people, which yes, is But this, of, is, this uh, is the story of an evil hobo. But yeah, um, yeah so but the idea is really <laughs> that the big rock candy mountain is sort of like the thing you have to look forward to in this, you know, hard-fought life is basically right. the afterlife because that's about the best you're going to get. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, before this happens, there were some pretty powerful symbols that were created to help communicate uh, conditions in right. this community that was known as the Brotherhood of... Yeah, the Brotherhood of the Freight, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, exactly. So you can Google Big Rock Candy Mountain full lyrics, just by the way. We're not going to recite them. But uh, this... This message, this system of symbols existed for 
500,000 people in the early 1900s. It had spiked to 700,000 by 1911. By the Great Depression, the number exploded, and we reached, uh, we reached something called peak hobo. Yeah, that's the official term. That's, that's yeah. the scientific term. And while these people were on the rails, living on the fringes of a society that did not want them around, they devised a system that, that we would not recognize to communicate with one another. And this, this, system, uh, this system was meant to warn other travelers, other people in this brotherhood that you mentioned, Noel, uh, about the conditions of the town they would find or about uh, things that uh, would be beneficial or uh, to be a, a system of warnings, right? Yeah. And, it, and it didn't use words. Yeah, that's, this is highly important because a lot of this population was either illiterate or they were speaking different languages. So there, there wasn't a whole lot of common from a language perspective. So it, like, uh, did you call it hoboglyphs already? <laughs> no, but that is the this, term. <laughs> like hieroglyphics in a way because it is. It's, it's, um, you've, you've likened it before to the IKEA yeah, uh, the IKEA thing. instruction manual, right? Yeah. We've all bought disappointing furniture. Like we, we know what that <laughs> is. You know, there there are no words. Those same manuals are uh, printed and distributed across the globe because everyone can get that that awkward humanoid figure and their awkward buddy. Um, yeah, you one, don't you don't need words for it, right? That's the whole point of this. And that is the one indisputable concrete remnant of this community. This thing called hobo code uh let's uh, do you guys want to do some examples yeah, of what hobo code is well, so let's say you're going into a new town and you're looking for food uh, as you may want to do as we all uh, usually want to do and there somebody has come along and found a good free food source from some building or some group of people that lives in an area so you would you'd note this to anyone else who comes after you by making a tea Except it's not just any tea. It's like a box and then another box. It looks similar to Tetris. The good pieces, you know, the long yeah, ones. Yeah, the important ones, you know. <laughs> um, but that's kind of cool. So if you, if you note that somewhere in your town, perhaps this means there's a good source of free food there. Well, there was even like a variation of it where I believe it had a cross up on the side, mm-hmm. yes. which implied that if you talk religion or like kind of act like you're into Jesus, that they will give you free food. So that's another important little tip. Um, we have another one that would warn people about the state of like natural resources, like a water supply mm-hmm. yeah. that may have been like tainted. So that would be a squiggly line with like another line on top and another line on the bottom. And that would let them know to like avoid this well because it will make you uh, intensely ill. Right? Good stuff to know. Yeah, need food, need water. I'm going to give you some warnings just so you know. And the people who lived in these communities would have no idea what these symbols were. I mean, a capital T would just be like, wow, that guy's name must be... Tim. Again, I hope no one here is named Tim. And they also, like, it's not like it was um, alarmingly large or, like, printed in some right. super central place. It would be in a place that these folks would maybe know where to look for them. Yeah, yeah. and kind of temporary with, like, chalk or coal or something yeah. that was readily available. And there was, there was a darker side to this as well, because in many cases, perhaps a preponderance of cases, this, these symbols were meant to warn uh, to warn other travelers of danger. There would be something that looks like a square, but it's turned on a corner, so it's sort of a diamond, and it has one line going up. And that meant be out of this town by sundown. 
be ready to defend yourself. There's no way someone could guess that, right? I mean, no, and that's the thing, too, about this language and the way it evolves. It was experiential. So, you know, these folks would have to um, have these experiences mm-hmm. enough to the point where it would spread and they would know to look for these symbols because it wouldn't just happen overnight because some right. of them you could kind of Ikea it and figure out, oh, I think this is what this means. Mm-hmm. But ones like this were a little bit more um, shrouded and kind of mystery. Mm-hmm. And law enforcement plays a big role. Series of interlocking circles mean handcuffs or law enforcement will put you in a chain gang. I like the point that you bring up here, Noel, because although the term hobo code is very fun to say, try it at home, uh, the, the reality of this is that this was a language built on tragedy and suffering and blood. And it sounds like a neat historical footnote, but here's the thing. These secret messages exist today. People are still alive. Thousands and thousands of people are riding the rails, are living on the fringes of society and using new iterations of this code to communicate. So Atlanta's got a pretty yeah. decent train hopping community. If you've ever been to Little Five Points, like right. uh, you see yeah. the folks with like the dogs with the bandanas and mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, that's sort of that's like a modern hobo. I'm not kidding. And I, I grew up with kids like that that mm-hmm. would hop trains and made a whole way of life around it. And they kind of carry on some of these traditions. Yeah. So does this mean that uh, the world of secret symbols and languages is relegated to people who are maybe burnouts or on the lam or living on the fringes of society? Have we solved it? Is that Yes, we have. Okay. And uh, that concludes the show. So Thanks. really, guys, Thanks thank for coming. you. Thank you. Thank you. It's disappointing. Oh, are we going to keep going? We yeah, we, yeah okay. we should. Okay. We probably should. But okay. it's true. It's not that simple. Uh, secret symbols also exist in the world of art, right? Yes. Uh, we, we explored things in the past like the Toynbee tiles. Oh, what, yeah. what, are, what are those about? They're these weird linoleum art pieces that get pushed into the ground in, in asphalt on streets in mostly Philadelphia and New York and other places like that. And it says, Toynbee idea. In movie 2001, resurrect dead on Jupiter. Cool, right? Really cool. There's a couple other flavors of them as well as yeah, far as the text. Bigger. But I mean, but this is the main idea, the Toynbee idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what it, does it mean? By yeah, that? I mean, it's we don't know. We don't know who makes them. It's it's in English. It's using the alphabet. Well, it, does it mean that Toynbee felt like he was plagiarized by Stanley Kubrick in 2001 Space Odyssey? Was there resurrecting of dead on Jupiter in Space not Odyssey? Really, yeah. Not really. Not in the That's film up for release. Interpretation, not in the theatrical then. release. But then there are other works of art like the Codex Seraphineus or the... Um, Voynich Manuscripts. Yeah, yeah. They're purposely created to have some sort of inscrutable language and they are known to be works of fiction. So does that mean then that the world of secret signs and symbols is relegated to uh, relatively cerebral works of art or the fringes of mainstream culture? I'm going to say no this time because I feel like (laughs) that's probably a better answer. Yeah, we can move on. We can move forward to the next thing that they're relegated to. Yeah, Yeah, so the world of secret symbols actually goes much, 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 much deeper. In fact, as we all came to Terminal West tonight, we may well have carried some of the world's most famous agglomerations of secret symbols with us in our pockets, in our wallets, in our purses, in our fanny packs. I hear those are making a comeback. I'm a fan of the fanny pack. I mean, it's a utilitarian yet stylish uh, accessory. Yeah, um, fanny I, I have no problem with the fanny pack. You can wear it on the side, you can right? wear it on the back, wear it on the front, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> according to numerous critics, 
the most powerful secret symbols. Are you anti-fanny pack, Matt? What's your problem? Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> no, we, already, we already got you a present. Are you going to... Are you serious? It's a Gucci bag, dude. Would, it's a Gucci yeah, it's belt a nice bag. it's a fanny yeah. pack, man. Okay, I would wear... I would wear it's a, a knockoff. Okay, well, just it's, please it act looks really, really good. I yeah, will. please act surprised. Oh, my gosh, you guys. <laughs> okay, no, when we get the fanny pack. <laughs> but, but, uh, but it does go much deeper uh, because... These secret symbols that people argue are, are the most powerful in our world today are on something we and you and your fellow Americans carry with you every single moment, theoretically. And it's a weird thing. It's a really dirty thing. About 40% of it carries traces of fecal matter. Ew. Yeah, 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 it's true. But as we are recording this right now, statistically speaking, people are literally murdering one another for a chance to touch it. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Just your way, right? <laughs> uh, 80% of it carries uh, traces of cocaine. These are both conservative estimates, by the way, despite the fact that possession of this drug carries very harsh consequences. Conspiracy realists, we are talking about by far the most ubiquitous medium for hidden symbols in the Western world. It is the U.S. dollar. Feel free to take one out after you heard the statistics about shit. And, uh, and if you have it, check the designs as we explore fine. the story. Dude. It smells just... You don't have to... Oh, my God, dude. Did you not hear the stats a right? minute ago? Are you not paying attention? 60% doesn't contain Okay, poop. well, okay. I mean, it's better than a lot. I don't know. The math just... that I heard was like 120% feces in cocaine. Yeah, so. that checks out, <laughs> you right? Do, yeah. You do you, but I'm going to... So, yeah. <laughs> so if you've, if you've seen the back of a $1 bill... If you have, your odds are pretty good uh, as far as not touching poop on balance if you want to hold this with us. Uh, if you've ever seen the back of this bill, uh, one thing will immediately stick out. It's engraved with a gigantic stone pyramid similar to what you would see in Egypt. There's a desert, the whole nine. That's weird. Uh, no, it, that's so regular. Just a giant pyramid. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Happen. Yeah. Pyramids are like a classic move, architecturally <laughs> speaking, right? You, dude, yes. <laughs> but, but there's something different about this pyramid, right? Instead of a normal capstone, there's a floating capstone suspended in midair with this all-seeing eye just sort of staring out at you. Kind of like the, uh, the Eye of Sauron in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. yeah. Myst- mystical shit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's weird. It's just not quite on brand with the U.S. You it know? really does stare right, right at you. <laughs> and, like, it follows you when you move around the room, which is weird <laughs> considering how small it is. But. Right, right. <laughs> and this symbol, uh, this symbol has several names. One of the most popular names comes from Christian mythology. It's called the Eye of Providence. And usually when we are looking into early Christian mythology and folklore, we defer to Matt. So, Matt, oh, okay. uh, not to put you on the spot, but to put you on the spot in front of a bunch of people. Uh, what, what's the Eye of Providence? Oh, well, in this case, we're, we're talking about the symbol of a triangle, right? A triangle has three angles to it, three sides. Hmm, what could that mean? It's probably the three aspects of God, right? Father, Son, you can say it with me, Holy Spirit. Why right? does Holy Spirit get two? They said yeah, that, like why, why is it? that was doing the cross. People it's always do that. I mean, it's yeah. not I on did you, it the wrong way. It's not your fault. It's all good. Thanks for putting me on the spot. And there's, there's this, uh, one of the first known appearances of this comes in a painting called The Supper of Emmaus, uh, created by a guy named Caravaggio for the Carthusians in like 1525, yeah. but it's not 
it's not super blatant. Oh, right? this is the one though that uh, yeah. contains the there's rays of light that we talked about yeah. as well. Oh yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. Didn't mention exactly that yeah. emanating from this uh, this triangle, Ooh. and this painting is what first featured that in like I think it's a reflection through a glass or something. It's pretty subtle, but it's meant to be like this divine light of, of Christ. Uh, somewhat cool, hidden, indeed. One might yeah, say. occluded. <laughs> there we are. Yes. Yeah. So if, if you go even further back in history, you will see that this wasn't always called the Eye of Providence. It does have some sort of folkloric precedence, let's say, in Egypt. Oh, yeah. You're talking about the Eye of Horus? I am. A different god? <laughs> Horus? A, a sky god? I love a good you sky will. god. Um, <laughs> it was represented by that eye. You've probably seen it before. It looks like it has uh, some really killer eye shadow going on. <laughs> yeah, you've probably seen it's it It's like before. a smoky eye. Yeah, it, it is. It's, really, it's, a, it's, a it's nice like smoky sultry, eye. you know? Huh? I learned a lot from my wife uh, about eye shadow. It's important. It's important stuff. Um, but uh, but this, this Horus, this god Horus, is also sometimes often depicted as a falcon. <laughs> Uh, yeah. We're live, and, I'm sorry. Well, and you may, you may notice on the other side of the bill that we're going to talk about a little later, uh, there's a big old eagle hanging out. Hmm. You think he's got a name, like an official name in the, in yeah. the uh, parlance of, of this, this symbolism and imagery? What do you well, think? Uh, Gregory. 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 Okay, yeah, that checks out. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so Gregory, the eagle. Mm-hmm. Gregory, the eagle. Let's fast forward to the United States. How did this weird symbol end up on the dollars that we're trading and apparently pooping on every day. Uh, it's, it's a weird story. It wasn't always there. The, the eye itself was not originally on the dollar. The pyramid and the eye are both part of a much older thing called the Great Seal. Way back in 1776, around July 4th, surprise, uh, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams and a few others were thinking to each other, how do we make these 13 states look more, like, more legit. legit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how do we, we mm. want to make an impression. You know what, we should... We, we need should, branding. We need branding. We should get a stamp, you guys. Like, let's stamp some stuff, yep. you know? And so they came up with this great seal. It's approved on, what, uh, June 20th, 1782? Correct. And uh, these symbols themselves are supposed to reflect the beliefs of the founding fathers, some pretty standard, I would say, beliefs when you're creating a new country. Uh, what, what are these beliefs? Uh, independence, enlightenment, right? These are, these are important things, but those two ideas have something in common with a lot of movements or a big movement that was occurring around that same time. Yeah, someone in the audience right now is like, Freemasons. I know it. <sighs> I know they were Freemasons. I see you. Yeah, thanks for coming. Matt, uh, is, do is we it, have uh, any Freemasons? It, no. <laughs> isn't your grandpapa a Freemason now? There was some association with my family, yes. <laughs> okay. is, that, is that all you can say? Yeah, that's all I'm going to say. We okay. ask him this question every show. I'm uh, cool, though. I'm cool. Yeah? Yeah. Because is it like cop rules? Do you have to tell us that you're a Mason if we ask you? <laughs> All right, moving on. Moving on. So the, the front of the seal, as you said, Matt, depicts a bald eagle holding an olive branch in one claw and, uh, and uh, arrows in the other, right? Yep. Peace and war. Uh, cool, I get it. Dichotomies. That's tight. But the, uh, <laughs> but the reverse side, the back of the seal, is what shows the pyramid and the eye. And the founding fathers said, oh, this represents strength and durability. And they're like, why is the capstone floating? That's weird. And they're like, ah, it's because the pyramid's unfinished because you guys 
the nation's unfinished. And they Beautiful. were like, and Benjamin Franklin was probably like, oh, think about it. Because he's totally that type. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, he was kind of an actually kind of dude. He you was know? so yeah. actually. That's like his thing. <laughs> So if you go to the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, those are the people who make these coupons today. If you go to the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, you'll find it's not on the official tour. Have you There's... taken this tour? Yeah, I oh. have. Is, is, it, is it cool? Yeah, it's dope, man. It's what? Like, okay, I yeah. should go? Yeah, you should totally go. Okay. Take a date or something. But like... what, what question do I ask to get like the real line, not, not just the <laughs> official party line? Who do I talk to and what do I say? Yeah, well, if you find one of the employees just sort of hanging out off the record. They're like, I don't know, Subway or Five Guys Is it because they're underpaid and they're just willing to dish? So, yeah. Okay, so yeah. what do they say? And then probably you're, you're really good with strangers, so they probably want to talk oh, to man, you. Oh, that's very yeah. kind of you. It's true, it's true. So what's, what's the unofficial oh, okay, line? so the unofficial stuff is pretty much the party line we discussed earlier. The pyramids meant in some way to symbolize the lasting power of the U.S., similar to the way the pyramids of old withstood the test of time, time, time. Yeah. And, and you, know, you know what I found out today? What's that? If you go to the Federal Reserve in Atlanta and you take a tour, it's the Mon- National Monetary Museum, you actually will, they'll give you a bag of money when you leave. Shredded. Uh, yeah, it's shredded, though. That kind of sucks. <laughs> but that's kind of interesting, right? You can't, like, tape it back together. You would try, but you have to be very good. It's probably really tape. thin shreds. They probably have really solid industrial shredders there. They would have to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, let us know if you do tape back a dollar and tell us where to bring them, just by the way. Uh, so the actual dollar, the actual dollar, the one you saw, Pyramid, eagle, all the weird stuff. There's a hidden owl or spider in there as well. Uh, It didn't come about until 1935. There's a guy named Henry Wallace, and he is the Secretary of Agriculture, which has nothing to do with anything, uh, (laughs) under President Roosevelt, and he sees a pamphlet on the Great Seal, and we have a a factually accurate historical reenactment of this. Mm -hmm. He walks up to the president, and he's like, hey, Rosie boy, you know, I saw this thing about the Great Seal. It's a, it got the motto, it's a Novus Ordo Seclorum, New Order of the Ages. That's kind of like your thing, you know? Was uh, he like, like New in Deal. the mafia? Or? Yeah, 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 <laughs> in this version, yeah. And he's like, it's like New Deal of the Ages. This is perfect. We yeah, should... and then Roosevelt says, never call me Rosie Boy ever again. And then he yeah. punches him. But he's like, but cool idea. I like this. Let's go yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah. And, and Wallace is like, you know, we should put that on a coin or something. That would be dope. People love that kind of thing, you know? And then Roosevelt... They're collectible. They're collectible, you know? They're like the original pogs. But no. No. <laughs> Roosevelt says, I will do you one better, my good sir. And he says, we're going to put it on the most circulated uh, piece of American currency that exists, which is the, the dollar. Yes. In this case, the $1 silver certificate. Right, which means that in 1935, when this thing came out, theoretically on paper and hopefully in practice, you could walk to someone, you could be like, here's the thing, give me this much silver. And they would be like, well, he's got the certificate, or she's got the certificate. They would give you silver, which was a, a, a big deal, I guess. Yeah, you could, you could kill a lot of werewolves if you had enough dollars back Huge in those days. Huge problem. It was a 30s. werewolf epidemic in those yeah. days. It was, it was hard times. It's true. There's a documentary about that, probably. But, uh, so, so now the question is, there are no more silver certificates, right? At least actionable silver certificates. So what does this dollar that we've been discussing stand for? Or like in the real world, what is its value based on? It's a fiat currency. I know everybody in this room knows this, but we're going to talk about it because 
It's re- we really got to hit it home for, no. for the rest of this episode, okay? Fiat currency is not an automobile. No, it's no, it's not. Um, beautiful, cute little automobiles. <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll often hear people talk about this, how the U.S. dollar is a fiat currency. And that just means uh, that the, what this is worth, it's not backed up by any kind of uh, metal or anything like that. It's just it has value because some authority figure, in this case a government, says that it has value. It's literally a faith rectangle. That's yeah. what this is. It's an article of faith. We all agreed, and I don't want to call anybody out, so I'll call all of us out. We all agreed and continue to agree that this thing is yeah. worth a thing. And, yeah. and we're like, no, everybody wants to be cool. Everybody wants to fit in. Someone's like, hey, I have like 20 of these. And we're all like, oh, nice. Good job. That's yeah. way better than a Bed Bath & Beyond coupon. You is know it, what is I mean? It, is it if you're, if you're like, has some really cool stuff. They do have some yeah. steals. They have some buys. If you're like my friend Alex over there, you can gather up like 100, 200,000 of these, and they will give you a house. Isn't that crazy? But if you paid in singles? Can you imagine paying for a house with dollars, like in a big giant sack? <laughs> yes. They, that they, would be a baller move, I have to say. <laughs> they'd have yeah. to take it, but they would probably be like, oh, so what drugs do you sell? They, they'd make a face. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. those dollars would probably be like 90% cocaine. <laughs> but, mm. but it's imperative and crucial to remember that despite the symbols this bears, U.S. currency itself is a symbol of something else. The power behind the paper, if you will, it's, it's something that is a boogeyman in so many conspiracy theories ever since its creation. It's something we call the U.S. Federal Reserve. Ooh, and we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve right after a quick word from our sponsor. Oh, cool. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then you found yourself subscribed? Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was uh, tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life. And you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. 
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. You fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for 40% off site-wide at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. We're live. Okay. Oh, oh, yeah. sorry. Jeez, I keep for- Okay, yeah, yeah. all right. That's sorry, my sorry, bad. Sorry. It's my really bad. hard to my break bad. these habits. You know, yeah, we yeah. usually we usually do this show like in a in like a weird shipping con- container with yeah. no windows. We don't really even know what time of day it is, and we get an electric shock delivered to us by yeah. Paul yeah. when it's time yeah. to break. So we're kind Wake of up. like uh, Pavlovian dogs yeah, uh, of podcasting. Behaviorism. You know? yeah. Like we're so trained when we're just hanging out, we take commercial breaks. But we're back. But yeah. we're back. Okay, we're back. We're back. Okay, so here's how it started. The U.S. has an incredibly muddy history with the idea of central banks. That's what the Federal Reserve is. A central bank is just a financial institution that's supposed to make sure the coupons a country uses will retain the same value they had yesterday and have it in the present day and have something like that tomorrow. Matt, you made a face, but that's, that was the train. There's a train, like, right up there, and it, okay. it occasionally goes, squee! Well, I was trying to focus on what Ben was saying, but, yeah, the train freaked me out there a little bit. <laughs> we'll, um, go, we'll go look for hobo code later. <laughs> okay, yes. Yeah, so, so the Fed, it turns out, is not, not the first central bank. In fact, it is the third. It's the third try that our country has made at this, and the, um, the first one dates all the way back to Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton. You know, I think I figured out why uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda decided to write a musical about Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. Because just the cadence of saying that name it is, is just perfect. Alexander. Alexander Hamilton. Oh, it's beautiful. You know, it's just yeah. it's a perfect name for, uh, for a musical. It's yeah. A million, and, million things I haven't done. <laughs> and, and, you know, we all recognize Alexander Hamilton from his uh, recent renaissance in uh, the world of musicals. Uh, it turns out he was a real person, actually did some stuff. Uh, was, a, was the first secretary of the treasury and was super, was, was super perplexed and worried after the Revolutionary War, uh, which on the other side of the pond they call the American War of Independence, Somebody asked us that earlier. Oh, yeah, find that's, the that's the actual... Yeah. What it wasn't it? the Peasants' Uprising. Yeah, that's, that's what, what they, they call said it. They said. But, uh, it's but, still referred to that probably in some circles. But. Oh, sure, sure. And, and so Hamilton 
believed that the U.S. needed some sort of banking authority because otherwise he thought the country would be doomed. It turns out that wars are crazy expensive, you know? And yeah. he envisioned this bank as, quote, a profit-making institution with private shareholders holding four-fifths of its stock and electing four-fifths of its directors. Was, he, was this was he like Oliver Twist or something? Yeah, in this, <laughs> in this version he is. Okay. Yeah, he's I pretty like much it. Twist. I like yeah. it. This is highly important, though. Let's not lose any of this. A profit-making institution, first of all, and four-fifths of its directors, its stock and directors would be private shareholders. Four-fifths, that's a lot of private interest in this right. giant profit-making bank. Okay. That, that means, I mean, that is important, Matt. That means that uh, only 20% of the steering wheel, and they would have no idea what a steering wheel is, let's just be clear. It <laughs> means like 20% of the steering wheel uh, belongs to the country affected by this concept. And so we would imagine that Hamilton and co. had to come up with a really good pitch for this, right? They were like, we need a name, like a real banger name. It's the, it's the, first, uh, it's the first central bank of the U.S. It's the first bank, first bank, first bank. How about the first bank? Oh, shit, great idea, right? Dropping the mic. <laughs> no. and, and so they were like, that's the best. That's the best, a burst of creativity. Well, I mean, it's descriptive, you know. I mean, I yeah. think it's, they were just trying to be utilitarian with their naming <laughs> conventions. And we'll see this carry on throughout the story. Yeah. But there were um, people who opposed sure. this idea. We yeah. had Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. They were super against it. But despite their um, outrage, uh, it was passed. It was created in 1791. Congress granted the Bank of the United States, the first bank, a 20-year charter. Mm -hmm. and just every, to try it out. Just to try it out. Just, just give just, it a go. Just 20. That's, that's just fine. Just 20. That's not a commitment, right? 20 yeah, so, years. So then the bank's charter comes up, right? Yeah, in 1811, but this time James Madison is president. This guy knows how to hold a grudge. He says, no way, not happening. I'm in charge now. I don't know what a steering wheel is, but I'm probably at it. And uh, we're not going to extend this bank. We are firing the bank. Critics were on his side. They said this was, uh, this was injurious to economic growth. It was holding the nation back. But there's something else this that, is crazy. that you won't find with a lot unless you dig into it a little bit. Remember how we talked earlier about four-fifths of the first bank being held by private interests? Of that, of that 80%, two-thirds of the bank was owned by private British, ins British interests. Yeah. Like, I'm stuttering a little because it's weird, right? It's like... That's crazy. Like, imagine... It's like, imagine you get divorced with, uh, from someone and you're like, you know, we've, we've gotten divorced... Uh, we should get a credit card, you know? Yeah. Joint bank account. Here, yeah. Here's the keys to my house and, yeah. uh, and you can, you know, have like three-fifths of my cat. Yeah. That sounds you know? great. Yeah. Let's That's do it. What a plan, right? Uh, and That's mind-blowing to me. I, I had never <laughs> known that ever before. Um, and it makes sense because a lot of the money was, was in British hands at this time, mm -hmm. right? But still, to allow it to occur seems atrocious. Well, that's and, just me, maybe. And this continues for uh, about a year. In 1812, uh, something occurs with a, another very creative name. Oh, the War of 1812. Right. Yeah, it was a war. And they were like, what do we call it? Uh, so in 1812, 
President Madison changes his mind, and he says, I might not fully agree with this thing, but we need something. We need something. Well, it was because things had been relatively chill, and, the, you know, the, uh, there was peacetime, and it was like, you know, we don't need this bank. We're mm-hmm. fine without it. And then, almost as though there were a pattern, war flares up again. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah, shit, we got to figure out how to finance this. It's almost as though we need some kind of central bank. Yeah. So we'll, we'll make another one. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And that's, that's what they do. And they say, we can only imagine, they say, well... That was kind of that was kind of dry the first run. That was kind of it's weird that war turns out to be expensive. You don't really get a price break. Who knew? And uh, they're like, we need a better name though. We need a name that will inspire uh, creativity, ambition, entrepreneurship. The second bank. That's it. That's it. So in a burst of creativity, they're like, let's call it the second bank. And you know what you're getting. You know, it's yeah, just, yeah. It's, it's what it says on try. the tin, right? This lasts till 1832. President Andrew Jackson is in office, and he's like, no, this is malarkey. I'm done with it. We're out of this. As a result, the U.S. had no central bank from the mid-1830s to 1913, and during this time, numerous terrible, terrible things occurred. Yeah, there are just crashes all over the place. Uh, we don't even have to ramble them off, but it's like 1873, 1884, 1893, 1901, 1903. And then this thing happens in 1907 called the Panic of 1907, which would lead to um, some serious, serious problems. Yeah, it was, the, it was sort of the, the feather on the financial camel's back. And the government, uh, the people in the government looked around at each other and they were like, harumph, 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 something must be done. Harumph, harumph, harumph. And as so often happens in American politics, everyone could agree there was a problem. No one could agree how to solve it. And they all hated each other. That doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> right. Right. So it wasn't even a matter of calling one party corrupt or one group corrupt. It, wasn't, it was a matter of which pocket you were in. And they're like, well, you're in the pocket of special interests. Well, you're in the pocket of those fat cats on Wall Street. Well, I don't know which pocket you're in, but screw that pocket, you know? Yeah, yeah and this also trickled down to, like, you know, the citizenship. I mean, people distrusted these fat cat bankers, as you mm-hmm. refer to them, mm-hmm. um, a lot. And it was just, there was no support for this kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The years leading up to this, like we've we've seen political satire cartoons in the New Yorker and stuff. Back then, they were insane. They were not subtle. There was again like this this top hat, monocled, cane sword wielding banker guy coming out to Midwest America, putting his hand wrist deep in a baby's mouth, pulling out food, and people were like, "What could be done?" Yeah. Um- don't Google those propaganda campaigns, okay? They're, Just don't. They're pretty racist. And there were, there were also, there were also um, crazy protests, public outcry. What are we going to do? You know what I mean? The 1930s sees the rise of a very serious progressive movement. It's often ignored in history books today. But even more importantly, the same captains of industry the same political titans who in public hated and vilified one another were meeting behind the scenes away from the public eye and just a little bit, at just a little bit of a quieter pitch, they were going, harumph, 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 something must be done. Harumph, harumph, harumph. But we should maybe like do it so that it, 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 it lines our pockets and our, our political cronies' pockets and our uh, banking bro 
everybody's pockets. Because we're all in a pocket, right? Yeah, everyone's in a pocket. We're very pro-pocket. That's the metaphor we're sticking with for the rest of the show. So a guy named, uh, this is an important character in the story, a guy named Senator Nelson Aldrich in 1908, um, he uh, gathered a group of said banking bros and political cronies, uh, and he called it the National Monetary Commission. And the idea was to study... um, potential economic reforms, reforms to the financial system. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Sure. Something must be done. Okay, let's take some action. Let's, let's bring private and public interest together and figure out what needs to be done. A noble, a noble pursuit. There we go. Yeah, chin up, right? And so for two years, the National Monetary Commission in, uh, investigates this idea of central banks in another country. How do you replicate that? How do, I don't want to be too divisive yet and say, I think they were like, how do you make money off this? As Noel was saying, in November of 1910, two years later, uh, Senator Nelson, we'll just call him by his first name for now, it'll come into play na- later, Nelson, uh, Nelson is in the midst of financial disaster. People are literally starving. And uh, he says, you know what, I know it's a, I'm a senator and it's my job to take care of the American public but I'm going to take some me time, you know? Like, I'm gonna, like, when's the last time you just travel for fun? I'm going to take a field trip. And this wasn't widely reported in the papers of the time. The few reporters who did bother to ask uh, were told that he was going on a duck hunt, not the Nintendo game. That wasn't around. Yeah. He was going, he was like, yeah, the country's burning. They're like, the country's burning down. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, like mallards, they just yeah. get to me. I just- as long as he had that dog, I mean... That's fine, right? That right, dog's right, the most right, important right, part right. of a duck hunt. That dog, was, and... that dog was an asshole, man. That guy. You can yeah. control it with a second-player controller. What? You know that, yeah. Right? yeah. How is oh, the no, show... Oh, no, you ha- can't control the ducks. The dog just shows up like Clippy and Microsoft. The wait, dog's wait, wait, just wait, a dick. Don't worry about the Control the ducks dog. with the second controller? Yes. We should do a show about this. We should do a Nintendo conspiracy show. We should play it too. <laughs> but, 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 but for now, we're talking about an actual duck hunt, or you know, at least the uh, the notion of an actual duck hunt. So right? where is he conducting this duck so, hunt? So uh, you guys have heard of a place called Jekyll Island. Have you guys heard of this place? Has anybody Anyone? been? We're in I, Georgia. I went once. You went? Well, I, I didn't hang out there. I, I can't get in and hang out. What do you mean? You just like were doing like recon? You were just like checking it out, like peeking through the... I was in the area. The, the hedge maze? Like, <laughs> I was in the area. This okay. is a different show. But, so, but Jekyll Island, what's if, that? If you're not familiar with Jekyll Island, it is still, and certainly was even more so then, um, an incredibly opulent getaway for the super, super, super 1% of the 1% of the 1% rich uh, to, you know, go do their things and maybe have secret meetings and uh, pretend duck hunts. Well, yeah. well, well, okay. So in their defense, by the way, Nelson takes five of his buddies, which we'll get to. In their defense, uh, this was not an obviously fake cover story. There is a duck hunting season. It starts in November around this time. It stops for a little bit. It resumes from December to January. So... Uh, maybe they were. Maybe they were hunting ducks. They, maybe they were. Like in the end, it doesn't matter. Right. Right. So these, his five buddies. It turns out, surprise, surprise. I hope this is not a Shyamalan move for everybody. It turns out that they were very prominent in the world of private banking, and they were very active in the thing Noel mentioned earlier, the National Monetary Commission. And despite the fact that these fellows had enormous power here in the U.S. and abroad. They were afraid to be seen 
hanging out with each other. So one by so Nelson Aldrich hooks up this really sick customized rail car. Like it's it's got mahogany, it's got chrome, it's very uh, it's flashy. And uh, he uh, he decides the best way to hide it is to hook it up to a train in New Jersey. And one by one, these prominent titans and captains of industry sneak onto the train, uh, not not using their names. Because I think they had, they had to have at least like one servant. I think they definitely pared down yeah. the staff Which the was situation. big. That was huge for them. Right. Yeah. But the whole thing, they had to use only their first name because mm. they wanted to maintain some level of anonymity. Um, so who's in there? Yeah. yeah. So under cover of night, one at a time, these guys sneak into this rail car. We've got Frank Vanderlip of National City Bank, Henry Davison of Morgan Bank. Uh, we've got Paul Warburg mm. of the Kuhn Loeb Investment House. These are all names that uh, stick around to this day and mm. companies that have gone through various name changes but are still basically doing the same thing. We've got uh, A. Piot Andrews from earlier, who was uh, then the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury Department, and we also have Arthur B. Shelton, who was the Secretary of that National Monetary Commission that was kind of doing some of the legwork that mm-hmm. led up to this meeting. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they may have actually haunted ducks, but on the way, they, uh, by the time they were done, they had discussed and formulated a plan in secret uh, to create another central bank. And we're like, ah, the two times, that's a gimme, but hey, lucky number three, right? Yeah. Right? And uh, we've got a question. Why, why was this meeting held in secret? Well, the biggest thing is that they knew, and we've kind of just touched on it, but they knew that if word got out that they were trying to present this kind of idea from both the private and public side, the, the House of Representatives, the people that actually represented the public of the United States, would absolutely shut this thing down before it even became a thing, mm-hmm. Right? So they, they had to keep it as secret as possible. And then we're going to find out a little later, because uh, it does happen, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> the way they got it passed was a little... Right, <clears throat> right. Well, I mean, it makes sense. It, it was associated... Any, anything associated with fact... Uh, wait, okay, I got to stop. All right, so I've been using the phrase fat cat a lot tonight, uh, and I want to apologize. Uh, I do have a fat cat at home. Uh, and I don't want to be disrespectful. His name is Mr. Jackpots. I will show you pictures on Instagram after the show, if you wish. So you should come up with a new word then, so you're kind of like uh, not, not throwing yeah. your, your, your sweet boys under the bus. Yeah, uh, big feline. I don't know. We just, we invested too much time. Just like uh, anti-fat cat prejudice, right? There we are. So it's true though, Matt. Like they knew that this would immediately be dead in the water. And that is why they held this meeting in secret. But holding this meeting in secret in 1910, uh, this results in a breeding ground for speculation, right? Rumor metastasizes. It becomes conspiracy theory because no one knows what's going on. But since we have decided to be here tonight, we won't be conspiracy theorists. Let's be conspiracy realists. And that means that we can't believe or accept a bunch of speculation without fact. So here's a fact for you. This is a fact we found. Uh, These guys did not admit that this meeting ever happened for years and years and years. It was not until the 1930s in the Depression where with like one or two of them said, uh, yeah, I mean... This thing happened. We didn't really hunt ducks. That was just... 
we thought it sounded cool, but... Yeah, and they call themselves the First Names Club, like we mentioned. So by the end of that time on Jekyll Island, Aldrich and all his, uh, his guys had developed this plan for a Reserve Association of America, which would be a single central bank with branches across the country. Uh, and then on December 23rd of 1913, Woodrow Wilson uh, agreed. He signed the Federal Reserve into existence. Yeah, yeah, and this was uh, it's December twenty third. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. A lot of uh, a lot of legislators are home with their families or back in their home state, and there's a tricky thing here. So they said the Federal Reserve banks, the regional reserve banks, like the one that's here, uh, would be owned not by individuals but by commercial banks. So this this means that. There's not, like, um, like you look responsible, but you can't go buy a regional reserve bank. And I'm sorry that you had to learn it here. But, sorry, dude. I'm but sorry. Neither can I. Let's not, let's not feel bad. But the, uh, the thing is, these banks would be coordinated by a committee that's kind of, sort of, appointed by the president. But not, yeah, they not get really. a list, right? That's yeah. kind of the idea. Just slide a list across the table and be like, just pick, like, seven. Cool. All right, cool. Yeah. So, so then it goes to who really owns this thing? Who owns this gargantuan thing? Uh, the officials governing parts of the system can own interest in particular commercial banks, but no one officially actually owns those shit-riddled dollars that we all just robbed at the beginning of the show. Uh, in fact, the Fed considers itself independent. Oh, yeah, this is, uh, this is important. Uh, and this... <laughs> It's mind-blowing, okay? And I'm truly trying really hard not to just be infuriated throughout this entire show. I have been during every show that we've done so far in this. Okay. The Federal Reserve says, The terms of the members of the Board of Governors span multiple presidential and congressional terms. Now, when you hear this at face value, you could say, Oh, this is very reassuring. This means that no matter who's in the White House, no matter how much I like him or her, uh, no matter how long they are in the White House, no matter which senator or House of Representatives uh, person gets elected, my money is safe with the Federal Reserve. That sounds lovely. Uh, I, I, Except, I hate, yeah, I hate to ah uh, you here, but uh, that's also kind of terrifying, isn't it? Because what they're all to, you know, another way to look at it is they're saying, no matter who you vote for, no matter who's in charge, we're in charge of the money. Yeah. They, they, like, you know, you can vote. That's cute. Yeah, think, uh, there was a quote from Alan Greenspan, who is the chairman of the Fed, you've heard of. Um, he said something to the effect of, there is no government body, there is no elected official that can do anything about any of the decisions we make. He just very brazenly said that out loud. And like, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's the vibe that we're working with with the Fed here. It's meant to be reassuring. So officially, this system is a bulwark, right? That's what it provides. It stabilizes these uh, faith rectangles. <laughs> I love that yeah. phrase. Thank you for me. That, Matt made that one. That was great. And uh, it, it stabilizes the dollar against the ups and downs of the uncaring, chaotic, ridiculous, horrible place that we live in. And the thing is, it doesn't matter what you would believe, it was created without the consent of the American public. No one voted on it. No one can vote on it. It is also arguably one of the most powerful financial institutions in the world. Pyramid, lidless eye, creepy Latin catchphrases, the whole nine. Yeah, and... Uh. Oh, man, I'm just going to bring it back to this. In the more than 100 years following its creation, more and more people are asking, is there more 
to this story? Is it just uh, this organization that exists outside of the control of the voting people of the United States? Or is it more sinister? This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then you found yourself subscribed? Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life. And you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Here's where it gets crazy. Yes! I love it when he does that. I love it. Well, it's true. It's true. We're going into crazy territory now, so I hope you're comfortable because maybe you'll be uncomfortable at the end of this. The, the most popular, most prevalent, most prominent conspiracy theory about the Federal Reserve is that rather than mitigating or preventing financial disaster, the Fed creates financial catastrophe to uh, it manipulates the money supply for the benefit of member banks and most importantly, 
the shareholders or the owners of those member banks. So no one can own a regional reserve bank, but anyone can buy shares in a commercial bank. It's just a question of how many you own. And, and this, this, argument, uh, this argument proposes that we, the public, are taught that financial disasters occur through two things, accident or incompetence. Subprime loans. <laughs> right? Right. And the, the, the argument is that the opposite is the case. And this is a really weird one to us because it unites people across a political divide. Yeah, it really does. By the way, we've been on the road a lot. Has something been happening with the stock market? We haven't exactly been keeping up, but I just noticed all the lines were red when I looked at my phone earlier. Everything's okay? We're all okay? We still... My mom sent me a text about it and said that my inheritance was dwindling away as we oh. speak, so... Yeah, I'm going to have to make this podcast game really, really, really work. <laughs> we got to stick with it. Yeah. It's, it's weird, though, because this is, um, this is a conspiratorial belief that unites people on either side of the sort of circusy political dichotomy, and you will find people who consider themselves libertarians, and they're like, yeah, I read in the Fed, that's messed up. But then there are people on the far left who are like, you know, eat the rich, screw the Fed, let's just get rid of it. And they're like, you know what, you're right. Once again, everyone can agree that there is a problem, no one can agree how to solve it. Harumph, 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 harumph. The most famous stories or conspiratorial beliefs about the Federal Reserve come from a specific book. Yes, it's called The Creature from Jekyll Island by this author named uh, G. Edward Griffin. Like a, like a Black Lagoon kind of situation? Or what's, yes. No. Well, the creature is the Fed. I get it. I get yes, it. It, got it. It's it's created like a, in that meeting yeah. and it mm-hmm. emerged and then it got on that rail car and it headed back towards New York. I'm just I'm making all that up, but that I can good. imagine I was it. Into it. I can imagine it. So uh, he considers the Federal Reserve more than just this simple tool to uh, control Americans via debt. We're not controlled by debt. We're fine. Nobody has any student loans or mortgages here. No, we're good. We're good. Oh, oh man. Right, Ben? Matt, my, my, my girlfriend is here tonight. Hey, Brandy. Can everybody say hey, Brandy? Oh, uh, hey, Brandy. Hey. Uh, and, uh, and we've had some tension because uh, my, my primary girlfriend is Sally Mae. Oh. Uh, was accustomed to a certain light. Oh, I'm going to pay for that Mine's one Why is not Sally Mae anymore. It's something called Navient. <laughs> yeah. It just kind of came out of nowhere, and all of a sudden it's like, it's not Sally anymore. Now it's, yeah. now it's Navient. And yeah. I guess I have no choice but to pay Navient now. But right. I, you know. Right, and the idea with uh, Creature from Jekyll Island is that this, this practice has been expanded and franchised out to other countries and that the Federal Reserve is using the practice of uh, deceiving people through chicanery, which we looked up earlier. Yeah, yeah. it's a new word for us. Yeah, uh, is deceiving people or state actors uh, to fall into debt and then using that to using that debt to control the actions of those countries, but he's got a lot of critics. Griffin has a ton of critics. Well, and wouldn't that kind of be the way um, that the uh, British interests that you know were part of the original First Bank or whatever mm-hmm. could have potentially exercised that kind of control Ooh. back over the colonies, right? By having that mm-hmm. much of a stake in the First Bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. The, the problem that we're running into here is that G. Edward Griffin took Shh, that... the train. 
Sorry, go ahead. I got to make a tea. There's some delicious food here. Or there was. <laughs> I guess they stopped serving it. Oh, dang. Wait, what's the um, what's what's the beef though? Uh, oh yeah, the beef is. Let me just recalibrate here. He took he took the pearl that's at the center of the oyster of that that 1910 secret meeting, mm. and then he created a whole bunch of stuff around it um, that he kind of, It's not necessarily pulling out of thin air, but he's creating a conspiracy from that real thing. He's engaging it's, in some whatifery. Yeah, it's dangerous. It's, it's dangerous. I'm going to get off my soapbox. Let's keep going with the show. <laughs> with no, the show. Do, you want a, do you want a soapbox? Or you... No, no, it's fine. You sure? It's just save a dangerous thing. Matt's, yeah. Matt's soapbox is a segment that we will have yeah. later. In the it just happens a lot these days where there is this one little grain of truth, which is mm-hmm. on this show, it's what we try and do. We find that grain of truth, right? Mm-hmm. That's the most interesting thing for me personally. And this guy did that, but then he just kept going down a rabbit hole <laughs> and he wrote this book that is fascinating, but a lot of it probably is in, it's just not factual. And the most, one of the most, salient questions that you get from this book if you, if you read it is uh, the essential thing the gist boils down to this could someone actively purposefully and successfully manipulate something as gargantuan as the US economy and therefore you know the international economy the answer to that is yeah 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 no absolutely to a scary degree like think of Warren Buffett he, yeah. could, he could tweet today and sink a company. You That's know? true, yeah. Or you've got like Jeff Bezos Ooh. or Carlos Slim, Halu, or any of these other profoundly, disgustingly rich human people Ooh. that can, like you said, just by communicating their intent to do something Ooh, or yeah. you know, their, uh, some kind of diversification that might happen, it can change the entire course of at least segments of the economy. Yeah, and that's the question, though. The question then is, does it mean that the Fed could do the same thing? The Fed is a group of people, and there are multiple avenues of oversight. And I'm not going to presume to know about your friends, but have you ever tried to order pizza with a group of eight or more people? It gets really nasty really quickly and and that's just pizza that's just like the argument over whether or not someone likes pepperoni or is (laughs) gluten-free and this is this is talking about one of the most important financial instruments in the world so it's it's kind of i don't know it's it's kind of difficult to to digest it but but we found another we found another conspiracy theory this is I, i would say this is like my second favorite yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a this is a great one. We've done an episode that kind of touched on this before in the past, mm-hmm. um, but again, it kind of goes back to what you were talking about, Noel. The whether or not there's British control over their former colonies still. Yeah, the idea is that the, okay. So in this one, the Federal Reserve is now a foreign banking institution, is controlled by the British, and the British are still super pissed about the Revolutionary War. It's like their main thing. They're like, we have a lot of problems, but damn it, it's time to go back, you know? And someone's like, hey, maybe we should fix unemployment. Hey, maybe we should look at immigration. And then, like, the queen turns around in a swivel chair and is like, no, let's be weird. Bring me back my colonies. <laughs> right? <laughs> and in this, in this idea, it goes a step further, and they'll say, oh, no, 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 no. 
Matt, Noel, Ben, Mission Control. This is not a matter of the queen. It's a matter of the true power behind the throne in the, in the world of the United Kingdom. It is the Rothschild family. You knew they were going to be here at some point. It's, yeah, there are a lot of just the, the, the targets that are aimed at with a lot of these conspiracies. Ooh. The Federal Reserve, the Rothschilds, Britain. Uh, we're hitting them all tonight. It's a real just doing the hits, folks. We had a uh, Rothschild, actually, or someone said they were Rothschild in a, a few cities ago. But, yeah. but, but who are the Rothschilds, Noel? Yeah, so it was a, a huge, influential family, that is a very old family as well, founded by Mayor Armshell Rothschild, and they amassed no, enormous amounts of wealth in multiple areas, segments, including uh, finance, of course, but also um, over the generations, they've diversified in a in a very big way they're active in wine and like technology mining the bond market arms trade just about anything you can think of they probably got their hands in it in one i mean it's a huge family as well and they're so diversified and spread out with the various members of the family that it's almost tough to kind of trace the money yeah. and right. understand exactly yeah. how much the entire family is worth and, and how and much influence they wield Exactly, and this is, a, this is a huge deal. My dad is in the audience tonight, and he was an accountant at this private club for a while, and he can tell you the difference between old money and new money, and mm-hmm. with, with old money, it's all of these, it's just a tiered uh, succession of, of inheriting fortunes, and each one just then becomes another fortune, and then the fortune just spreads out to this point where you go, oh yeah, I'll join that club for $50,000, <laughs> no problem. And that kind of wealth it's, it's intense. And then, but this goes back to the same question. This presumes that this family, this large influential family, somehow cooperates and moves in unison. Like what happens? They get together once a year and they're like, oh, what's our, what's our weird thing going to be this time? You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I doubt, I don't know your relatives, but I, I have never been that cooperative my, with my own. Again, that... Pete's example comes from a Yeah, but it was place. like utter financial control of an entire country's monetary system on the table for you and your family? I mean... <laughs> you no, might, you no, might figure no. it out. You might figure it out. I mean, Make some concessions, We you could know? maybe swing Tennessee, but that's it. You know? <laughs> but but this, this is interesting because there's a paradox in this idea. There's a bit of double thing, right? The same people who say, oh, the UK wants to control the US because they are still, again, for some reason, cartoonishly pissed about the Revolutionary War. Uh, they will also say, but the United Kingdom doesn't really control itself. It's owned by this elite banking cabal, and they're the ones who are, really, who are really making the decisions. And that sort of invalidates the beginning of their idea. That means that this, in this conspiracy, it's really an economic proxy war between like one family and then maybe a couple of families here in the U.S. It doesn't make sense, but the Rothschild family shows up in so many of these stories, so many pieces of this folklore tradition. We have a... Uh, we have one that we found that we, we really enjoy, and it doesn't take place on land. It does feature the Rothschilds. Uh, it takes place at sea. Can we barbershop quartet this one? Or yeah, let's no, go for it. Oh, what's okay. a trio? Okay. Conspiracy at sea. Conspiracy. Conspiracy at sea. Conspiracy. Bats. You have a beautiful singing voice. I, just, I, I was not prepared. I did not prepare them for that. Yeah. I just totally pulled that out, and you guys really did a good job. Thank you for humoring yeah, me on that. Conspiracy. Conspiracy. Whoa. 
Drop the beat. That's conspiracy with an S-E-A at the end, and by it, the way. Yeah. And we're not talking about the conspiracy cruise, which is apparently a thing. It's a real, it's real thing. Yeah, we, it's a real we've never thing. been invited to participate on that. But we'll we're there. talking about um, something else entirely. So there's this even more bonkers, in my opinion, conspiracy theory that the Rothschild family... Uh, in league with their banking crony and uh, Federal Reserve cheerleader, J.P. Morgan, was directly responsible for sinking a supposedly unsinkable ship. You may have seen a, a film about with the heart of the ocean and the, the, the hands on the, 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 yeah. the, the, the steamy window and the nude drawings. And you love that film. Well, I, I, I've really, in this tour, come to realize <laughs> that I saw that movie like 10 times when it came out in theaters when I was like, you know, 11 or something. And I was like, why did, I, why did the 11-year-old me like that movie so much? And we've traced it back to, to the, the new drawings. Yeah, it was the painting know. scene. Somebody called, called you out. <laughs> yeah, somebody in the audience called me out. And it's like, you know what? That's, that's yeah. pretty much accurate. Although it is a beautiful love story. Although it doesn't make sense, though. Why didn't she make room for dude? Well, okay, whoa, the, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said that like a million times. Yeah. That's my main beat with it. She's just like splaring you know? She's hogging the door. <laughs> she lets Leonardo DiCaprio go. And let's be honest, he's not a super big guy. He could have fit on there, and uh, I feel like she was just looking for a convenient end to her romance. But or, I'm going to say it. She or, ghosted. She ghosted on him. Or James Cameron was looking for a convenient plot device, oh, is my yeah. argument there. I mean, how well, well did doors flow? What Whatever. about that old couple, though? You what remember? A, no. No, it's okay. been a while. Okay, so, hey, Noel, what ship are we talking about? The, the, the Titanic. The, the RMS <laughs> Titanic. That's the full proper name. So, um, if proved to be, be true, this thing, we're, we're about to enter the realm of wild speculation. That's what this segment of the show okay. is called. Uh, it's called The Realm of Wild Speculation, a.k.a. Conspiracy at Sea. Um, so, if proved to be true, this would surely go down in history as, like, one of the most batshit, heavy-handed, or possibly genius assassinations in the history of the world. So, uh, Let's let's jump let's jump right in. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, let's wade into these icy waters. <laughs> let's dive in. Yeah, exactly. So J.P. Morgan & Co. Uh, financed the International Mercantile Marine Company, um, which was an Atlantic shipping company that kind of strong-armed its way into dominance in this industry by, you know, doing what these kind of companies do, absorbing some smaller, weaker shipping companies from America and Britain. Um, one of the IMCC's subsidiaries was a company called the White Star Line, which owned the RMS Titanic. Ooh. So uh, Morgan himself was actually booked to be on this doomed maiden voyage, but he canceled at the last minute, citing, like, tummy troubles or something. <laughs> I don't know. He, sore he, he wasn't feeling well. <laughs> he was unwell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's really sad. Um, but, you know, fortunately, or unfortunately for them, um, there were plenty of captains of industry and uh, the, your fat cats, Ben, on this ship, because, Matt, you did a good job of describing this in the kind of context of this particular idea, you could look at this thing as like a giant honey trap for yeah. the affluent. Let's get them all here, get them all in one place, and then we'll take them out. Yeah, if we're going to go along with this conspiracy theory, which is kind of ridiculous on the face of it, but if we hey. go along with it, uh, well, we're, we're already there in the speculation part, but if we go along with it, this kind of could be a perfect trap because you're going to have a lot of the people that you may want to target that don't hold the same beliefs about financial systems. You might get them on this ship. It, you actually have a pretty good chance of doing that just because it was such a spectacle at the time and the people that you're targeting are some of the most opulent, and they want to do things like be on a Titanic. 
Okay. Oh, okay. Let's just put that out there. Yeah. It could be a good trap. But okay, okay, okay. So, so I, I'm I'm sensing some uh, sinister stuff here, Noel. Uh, who who were they targeting? Were they targeting specific people? Well, I mean, there there are the three main ones that are mentioned in the stuff that uh, I've read about this story. But like mm-hmm. you said, Matt, I mean, it was an absolute playground of of the rich and powerful. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if if there is any truth to this at all, it would be include people outside of this set. But we have Benjamin Guggenheim, who uh, made a fortune in mining and smelting operations. Isidore Strauss, who was the co-owner of Macy's and also a, a powerful politician and a businessman. And then John uh, Jacob, Jacob Astor the fourth uh, of the Astor family, which is one of the most powerful and wealthy families of the 19th and 20th centuries. He was a builder, a real estate tycoon, an investor, you name it. Um, so these are the three that are cited. One thing that they have in common in everything we read about this is that they were against the Federal Reserve. They did not want this to happen, and they had enough clout um, and street cred to possibly throw their weight around and maybe stand in the way of this happening. Yeah, and then um, all Morgan had to do is just strategically place that iceberg. And, uh, it was you know, right ahead. It was yeah. Place to go. Right, Done. Right like, ahead. We're, we're good now. Yeah. So, so what, what, how does this all shake out? Well, it's speculated wildly, mind you, uh, that one of uh, the things that these guys had in common, like we said, was opposition to the Federal Reserve. I've also seen it as opposition to the income tax, mm-hmm. but um, those things are kind of conflated in this story. Um, but the ship sank uh, in April of 1912, and the Fed was formed the very next year. So this, here's the thing, though. This proved to be financially disastrous for uh, Morgan's company, the IMCC. Um, the company filed for bankruptcy protection in 1915. Um, so... Why would J.P. Morgan ruin his own company by sinking this unsinkable ship? And how would he even do it? Because the arguments that I've seen were like he had to have influenced the the captain of the yes. ship to like right. mess up. And um, you know, there's also stories about how there weren't enough lifeboats mm-hmm. that this thing was doomed to begin with. There were issues with like the technology where the compartments like magnetically mm-hmm. sealed, like trapping people and all of this. I mean, it was a whole. There's all kinds of things just about the Titanic sinking in general um, that are a little off. But why would he actively do this uh, and cause the ruin of his own company and and, uh, something that he would cause him to lose a lot of money? Does this mean that he absolutely had nothing to do with it? Or was it maybe like the perfect alibi? I think more likely the the first one, but uh, it's fun to think about. And like you were saying, Matt, with these seeds of truth and these grains, Mm -hmm. this is one of those. Yeah, I think there's some, um, it it points to this idea of incredibly rich and powerful people going to any length that they need to to get their way. And this would, again, if proven to be true, would be a pretty elaborate Rube Goldberg-esque example of that. Um, You're making the evidence fit your narrative when you do this kind of thing. It's just so, it's so weird because the there were what more than twenty two hundred people on the Titanic, and then if they're just killing, they're just sinking the ship to kill three people. Then what is that? The cost of doing business? Yeah, it's called collateral damage, my man. Okay, so yeah. the same way that a bank makes several billion dollars, and they're like, oh, we got a fine, two hundred two hundred million dollars. Uh, sheesh. Because given what we know about these, uh, how these like shadowy banking bros are able to rake in the profits mm-hmm. off of the backs of American taxpayers, mm-hmm. maybe the loss of a little shipping company might be worth the exchange. Uh, of utter control and dominance and, and lifelong profits that no one can ever vote you out of making. So who knows? Right, Maybe it is just the cost of doing business. Yeah, two questions. Go ahead. Two questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, doesn't it sound a little overcomplicated? Like, couldn't they just 
poison someone or have like a a horse accident or something? Well, it's like I said. I mean, these are the three that are named, but yeah. I mean that you know maybe they just wanted to like bump off like all of these these fat cats. It's not about the money. It's about sending a message. It's, that's probably yeah. true. I don't know. No, this is definitely most likely completely uh, bunk. But it's a lot of fun to talk it's about. Yeah, it's fun to think about. Yeah, I agree. And and when when you were you were doing this research, you you found some an, unanswered questions like about these three guys' stances too, right? Like, yeah, I mean there was nothing like really out there that was them just like totally soapboxing about how they hated the Fed. There were just some things about like their business practices and their politics that were slightly anti-Fed leaning. But it was a little unclear as to why these three guys in particular would have been the most problematic. But but they did actually die on the boat. They did in fact die on the boat. It's true. It's true. Let's move on to the next one, boys. Let's do it. Is it you? Here, yeah, I'm going to talk to you about this. Remember we mentioned that five-sided building called the Pentagon? Well, guess what? Here's a conspiracy theory (laughs) that perhaps the Federal Reserve exists in some way as an extension of the United States military. Ooh, okay, all right. Now, this is a little wackadoodle, but let's get into it. There's some compelling evidence that in several cases... This country has fought wars specifically to preserve the ascendancy of the U.S. dollar. A lot of times we refer to it as um, the petrodollar because it's, it's, it's tied to oil in a lot of ways. We've gone over that before in an episode. Check it out if you, uh, if you want to learn more about that. But in this case, we're talking about evidence that's been provided by a gentleman, an author named John Perkins. Yeah, yeah, right. You're talking about uh, confessions of an economic hitman. Uh, it's, uh, I would describe it as a book, you know. Oh, like okay. it's, it's, he wrote it. It's there. But uh, he, he makes some interesting observations. For years and years and years, Perkins worked in the uh, quasi-government, quasi-private uh, sector as ostensibly an economist, but According to his recount of the events, his real job was to travel to developing countries and to broker huge loans for infrastructure repairs and to, uh, to beguile the people and uh, lie to them, essentially, about, about how effective or not effective this infrastructure would be and about how affordable or not affordable it would be. So uh, just imagine you're in a place where the lights don't always work. You sometimes get the bad water, right, with the hobo code thing earlier, and then someone says, hey, not only can we give you clean water all the time, not only can we give you power all the time, but it will be a steal, it will be so great for your country, you will make so much money, and there's just like one small detail, we only accept payments in U.S. dollars. Yeah, and... Just by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Like, you, you might have your own currency. That's very endearing, good hustle. Uh, but we are a dollar business. And through the power of this economic influence, the argument goes, or his story goes, they brought other countries to heal and forced them into deals with multinational U.S.-based conglomerates. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, and the whole point is that they're loaning you an ungodly amount of money that you will never pay back. It sounds familiar, right? A lot of money that you'll never pay back. Maybe 30 years. Maybe, if you're lucky. <clears throat> I'm g- mortgage. <clears throat> oh, um, boy. But, yeah, anyway, if you're a giant company, you're getting, you know, perhaps billions of dollars in, this, in these U.S. dollars that you don't have that you're supposed to pay back somehow. And ultimately, you just 
end up doing the bidding of whatever this lender wants you to do, at least within this, uh, the realm of this conspiracy theory. So it's actually not that implausible if you think about it. We don't have to agree with Perkins' like 40,000-foot view, as they say in corporate America. We don't have to agree with his big picture. The very disturbing thing about this is that several of the cases he recounts are true. They're absolutely yeah. true. Indonesia is a, uh, a fantastic slash frightening example. Read the book if you want. Read the Wikipedia. I'm not going to bully you about it. Just let us know what you think and think about the, how the actions of the Fed and the actions of the U.S. dollar affect countries abroad. Uh, the world is an increasingly smaller place. But, speaking of fantastic segues, it turns out that we are headed toward the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah, we only have a few days, right? Yes. It's the 28th right now? Oh my gosh. What's your costume going to be? I'm Buzz, uh, my wife is going to be Jesse, and my three-year-old son is going to be Woody. Oh, man. Yes, we're adorable. That is the cutest. <laughs> That's right. For us, the most wonderful time of the year is Halloween. So we wanted to save our last crazy notion, the craziest one we heard, for the very end, and it's this. Okay, go with me here. Pretend we're, we're all at the same bar and it's like 2 a.m., right? Okay, so, uh, so what if, what if, what if, what if, the Federal Reserve, instead of a financial institution, is an occult institution? Oh, shit. Like, people really believe this. We didn't make this up. Uh, the idea is that what if every single dollar spent traded from one party to another is actually a spell? I'm not going to just poop on it, man. I'm not going uh, to... I want to cast a spell. <laughs> so, so for some fringe researchers, this means that the Fed is way more Slytherin than systemic. It's made way more like warlocky than White House, you know? And if the dollar is, is a spell cast by some strange cabal, then the following assumptions have to exist. Well, it's like this idea of exchanging energy or, or somehow yeah. hoarding energy through mm -hmm. the exchange of currency, which again, has this imaginary value. And the, uh, one of the proponents of this theory talks about how it's all about, like, a dollar represents energy. Because when you are spending it, you are paying for a service or something that would require time to do or actual physical energy. So somehow this system, they can harness this and kind of hoard it somewhere mm -hmm. and use it for some purpose. But here, here are the assumptions that, yeah, that are yeah. required what, What's the first one? One is that magic, uh, at least this type of magic, is real. That's cool. We've got and that And reproducible. Check. Reproducible, right. Uh, two, yeah, we've got uh, this idea that a secret group of people not only exists but cooperates. And we've talked about how hard cooperation can be. Right, right. Um, but to work this magic and accrue this energy from billions of other people um, and that some portion of this um, can actually be stored and used in some nefarious way. You mean like stored up in giant bank vaults in places <laughs> where you could store all your energy? Hmm? Sure. Or maybe in the stock market? <laughs> or mm -hmm. in the Illuminatus trilogy, uh, that kind of energy is stored in the Pentagon from traffic deaths. Exactly. Look, different book, right? And a work of fiction, as far as we know. But it's, it's a tall order. This is spooky stuff, right? Uh, to people who believe that the Fed is actively some kind of uh, evil Harry Potter 
nothing Voldemorting its way through the uh, international financial system, uh, the symbols on the dollar represent something else entirely, something that the Bureau of Engraving does not mention. In this idea that all-seeing eye on the floating capstone is not the eye of providence. Instead, it is the eye of... Satan! Sorry, I, I, I watched you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the eye of Lucifer Morningstar, and the light represents a different sort of illumination. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in this case, it's, um, it's Lucifer's light. Right. The illuminated one. Mm-hmm. Just like that illumination Global Unlimited. That, uh, which, by the way, thanks you uh, for all for joining us tonight. Um, mm-hmm. there, is, there is kind of a little ritual we have to do as we exit for them. Uh, well, we'll talk about it later. Yeah, um, that's fine. You'll it'll, notice. You'll it'll notice. be fine. Yeah, okay. But, but this also, this light, this light is meant to symbolize in this idea uh, the light of the illuminated ones, those who are aware of this mechanism, but the light has a double meaning in this idea, and it's the idea that you and us and, and your cousin that you probably should call, check in on them after the show, that we are ourselves uh, transparent to this gaze and incapable of holding secrets. And then there's yeah. this whole other thing with the eagle, right? Well, well first of all, let, before we get to the eagle, just that whole idea that uh, we can't hide anything from this organization or mm-hmm. the most powerful people. Mm-hmm. Can we just, one more time, we talk about it all the time. We're all walking around with a Siri in our pockets. We get home, there's a Google <laughs> Home hanging out there and Alexa just chilling going, what's that you said? Oh, just keep talking. It's fine. Just keep talking. I'm listening. I'm listening. Or, you know, we've got a camera that I've got covered up, by the way. Ben has covered up. Noel, is yours covered up? Nah, man, I don't care. Your cameras. <laughs> they can have my precious data. <laughs> as long as I can play Pokemon Go, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> Here we I'm, are. I'm just saying we don't need we don't need this to be an all-seeing eye in actuality. We're already doing it to ourselves, bros. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> are you good? Or are you I'm fine? Let's just do keep, keep, keep going. You good? Okay. Keep going. Do you want a commercial break or? Uh, no, it's way past. We're, we're yeah, too late. Yeah. We're, 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 we're in the stretch, you guys. So, let's, so let's get, let's get the there. eagle, then, in this idea, this occult idea, is not the bald eagle. Uh, what do we call him? Gregory? This yeah, Gregory. It's not, it's not your pal Greg. Instead, it's an it's taken from ancient pagan symbolism. And people who believe this will say, well, uh, well, you know, Noel, you know, Matt, that uh, that eagle was also used to signify the Roman Empire. And again, it was used as an icon for a certain German regime during World War II. Is this Benjamin Franklin talking? Here? This is. This yeah. is a historically <laughs> accurate. Benjamin Franklin somehow aware of the 1940s. I told you guys the hits. The Nazis made an appearance. There you of go. Of course, all the hits. Uh, and the Nazis were weird. Yeah. They just the, show up in everything. Dude, the Fool Society was a real thing, and there was some occult stuff going on there. It Look it up. Look it up. Silly and ridiculous thing. But this, this also leads to um, <laughs> differing, more esoteric mentions of numbers, because mm-hmm. a lot of these people believe in numerology as well. So it, do, it doesn't matter what you care about. Uh, just aesthetically, 
there's a, there's a shit ton of groupings of 13 on the dollar. Like, they went all in. Uh, what, are, what are some examples? Yeah, we've got the 13 stars, 13 stripes in the flag, 13 arrows that Greg is, is clutching in his little, little uh, eagle talons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got 13 leaves and berries in the olive branch, 13 letters in the phrase. Um, g- g- give it to me, Ben. I always mispronounce Anoequeptus. Thank you, Ben. Uh, and then we have, we have also 13 layers in that uh, creepy pyramid. Yeah. What else did we have 13 of when we founded this country? Colonies. So it totally makes sense. It's fine. It's just 13 colonies, right? Yeah, but if, yeah. We're, if we're really like going down this numerological rabbit hole, maybe the founding fathers were like, it's got to be 13. Yeah. We've got to have 13 because that's how we're going to make the spell work. You yeah, and so it was like, why are you freaking out? We've got nine. That's solid. No, and they were man, like, no, not, not, man. Not not We've enough. got a thing we're going to do later. But, but to be absolutely clear... Well, the off chance that someone is frightened about this. Uh, the, there, none of this stuff has been proven. None of this stuff has been proven in a way that people accept, or at least when we say that, we mean that no one has come to us and said, ah, shit, you guys figured it out. You got me. Was it, we had a good run. Was it 13? Were there too many 13s? No, that was it. We were worried about the 13s, but my God, you guys. Uh, so no one, no one has proven this, But it is true that the Federal Reserve was conceived and founded as the result of a genuine conspiracy. Not a conspiracy theory. These people conspired to create this thing, and then they covered it up effectively for years. And even today, many of its operations are conducted in secret. So it's no wonder that the story here inevitably ends on some vital questions. Does the Fed prevent disasters or does it create them, you know? And if it does create them, does it do so through honest mistakes, through incompetence, or through design? That's it. I don't know. I mean, Matt, do you... It's crazy. (laughs) We can't do anything about this. Seriously, none of us sitting in this room could do anything about this. (laughs) Ha ha! (laughs) <laughs> it's a fun show, you guys. This yeah. is we're having. A we're lot of fun. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Really, it just frustrates me to all hell. Okay. Well, it, it is true, Matt. I mean, either way, there's some. Dis- we don't need magic to be real to know that there are problematic things here. Uh, there is a disturbing truth at the heart of these conspiracies. There's a bit of historical fact hidden in that fiduciary fiction. And the next time you pull out a dollar. Think about it. Ask yourself what it may or may not represent and how it impacts the world in which we live. As a matter of fact, the next time you walk by a strange bit of odd graffiti scrawled in Sharpie or chalk or spray paint along a busy street, ask yourself whether it's a work of art, a hidden message. If so, who is it meant for? What does it say? Is it something they don't want you to know? Okay, all right, Matt, so that's mostly the show, right? Yeah, it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that. Both I, being on it and listening to it. <laughs> good job, Ben. Good, good job, job, Noel. Matt. Good job, Noel. Good job, everybody. Also, we were probably doing a better job in that episode because Paul Mission Control Decant was at the show. Uh, that's the whole reason. He just gave all the vibes. And it was the fifth iteration, the fifth time we had done <laughs> it. So we had uh, ironed it out a little bit. Oh, but there's one other thing. Yeah. That we, maybe we should have mentioned this at the top. 
Uh, we like to do sort of a Q&A thing at the end of a show, and we had a Q&A that took place not in Atlanta, but earlier in Philadelphia. And we really enjoyed uh, this Q&A, at least we enjoyed doing it at the time. I haven't listened back yet. Oh, it's great. <laughs> oh, good. Just so many good questions and passionate people. Um, probably It was my favorite QA as well. So we're going to listen to it now. Hey. How's Trevor. it going? Hey, guys. Hey, man. Hey, man. Uh, hey. Trevor. Hey, Trevor. <laughs> hey. How's it going? Oh, it's going well. Yeah. Um, going back to the beginning of the podcast, you guys were talking about the hobo symbols. Yes. yes. So if stuff they don't want you to know had a hobo symbol <laughs> and you guys were going to post one on the outside of World Cafe Live after we leave here Ooh. with that spray paint I didn't bring, Oh, right. what would it look like? I can tell you what it would be. Yeah, we cannot officially tell you. It would be the first... Unofficially, of course. We cannot officially tell you that it would definitely be... The first uh, three... Alphanumeric letters from our uh, phone number. Why? What? STD. <laughs> <laughs> we cannot. Just kidding. Just kidding. You know, we cannot officially tell no, you that, wouldn't that it that that it would be something involving an eye and a triangle. Again, we cannot no. officially tell you that it would be <laughs> something involving a triangle. All right. Circles and stuff. Or, I got it. I got maybe, it. I got it. I got it. Or maybe, maybe uh, Trevor, maybe it would be. Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. That's a yeah. thing. We, okay, like yeah, that's yeah. how the cops no, get called. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> redo, redo. We cannot officially tell you it would be a six-fingered hand. Thanks for coming, Trevor. Yeah. Thanks, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, hi, my name is Chris. Uh, hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. I'm a listener. Uh, hey. I was just wondering if, like, with this uh, theme of, like, Federal Reserve, you know, like, control, like, if this, like, have you ever, like, thought about, like, student loans as a Ooh. way of, like, controlling the I population? I think about it every day. Head. Yeah. Dude, yeah. student loans, just like, mortgages. Just like a medical condition, like, where it's, like, a form of control, but, right. like, here's how you do Yeah. yeah. I'm working on it. That is... Because I've got, uh, I, I've got... I've got one long-term relationship in my life. Uh, it's my main girlfriend, Sally Mae. You still are? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Mine got sold. Mine's not even Sally anymore. I don't yeah. even know what it's called. Oh, oh yeah. But, yeah, that's... That's the one. <laughs> Navient. Navient. Yeah, it's Navient. Yeah. yeah. But that's, that's... I mean, that's an important question. And it is... It's strange because it will occasionally get reported, but it's crippling the growth of future generations. Yeah. You know, have you ever had somebody who's older in your family, maybe a little stodgy, and they're like, well, when I was, when I was 28, I had, you know, like, I had my job at the paint store, and I sold my first house and made it a rental, and then I bought a car, and I just, you know, pooped everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's a I don't lot know. of poop. Yeah, a lot of food, um, but but it's it's true. If you, there you go, <laughs> right, that's there you why. Go. But if it's interesting that you asked this tonight because uh, I I looked into it and for that situation in post World War II and the the boom of the economy to exist for someone making minimum wage to buy a house, have two point five kids, all that other uh, census bullshit, the minimum wage would have to be slightly over forty five dollars an hour. That's how like inflation right is worked out right now. Yeah. Um, 
I don't make that. Does anybody make that out here? They're not going to say. Oh, okay. Oh, I, well, of course you I do. That's that too much. Of course you do. Andrew. Yeah. Our boy Henry. Oh, that's, that's what they most. bill me for. They don't pay me that. That's also yeah, true. It's also exactly. true. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that's actually that's that's something that we've been putting a lot of digging into, and we're we're hoping to do an episode on that pretty soon. So, uh, thank you for asking this question. Um, as far as the implications of it, I would say yes. It is it is not a conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy. People are conspiring to to privatize education like at the same time that student loans boomed and I'll get off my soapbox in a second I hope you don't regret asking this but at at the same time that student loans began booming as an increasingly privatized industry there also occurred this uh, change in the zeitgeist wherein you were told we were all told that the only way you can have a life worth living in this country is if you can sign yourself to college Uh if you can sign yourself to grad school if you don't go to trade school if you like we we were taught to look down on people for that reason and that's yeah and that's that's insidious and it's like propaganda it's it's going to affect us it's straight up edward bernays obviously yep thank you sorry nice hi i'm Lindsay. i'm here with chris Lindsay. (laughs) i've been listening for a couple of years how do you guys stay optimistic you dive into a lot of different things and some of the things they bore on ridiculous or esoteric but tonight you talked about a lot of things that affect us as citizens or just people mm-hmm. so how do you keep the optimism with the show and how we do seem you guys optimistic keep- is it true do, <laughs> do we really you have beer in front i think you're you, misreading so the, the vibe <laughs> no i don't know it's do hard think? it's hard uh i mean i have a we I, me and matt have kids and that makes it extra hard because it's all filtered through this notion of like what's it going to be like for my nine-year-old and I'm constantly living in, in fear and dread but you know uh, one day at a time um, and uh, I just I just I just have faith that my kid is smarter than me and is going to be like pluckier than me and just figure that shit out and just like navigate whatever life throws at, at her um, and I, that's that's my optimism there so I honestly have to say that it requires cognitive dissonance to continue, I'm being completely honest, to know the things that we all in this room know and continue on as though everything is okay. We just can't, we kind of have to not look at it. And I think that's the way it's been for a long time for a lot of humans. Yeah, but it's literally our job to look at it. So, yeah. But we in particular, yes. <laughs> um, but that, is that not a head in the sand? For me, it's video games, alcohol, uh, and nicotine. So, <laughs> yeehaw. Uh, I have about three feelings a year. Optimism is not one. <laughs> Anybody else? Anybody else? Thank you so much for passing around. Yes, thank you. This is the way to do it. This is fun. It's connecting us all. Hey, guys. Hey, man. I'm in uh, the construction industry, so to the student loan thing, we're now seeing a dip in available labor because of of that idea. But uh, going back to the beginning, there's a great um, documentary about the Toynbee tiles called Resurrect Dead. Absolutely. You can find online. It's it's, it's pretty good. We stole everything from that. Yeah. How hey, nice. It's, no, it's a great film. It's a really good film. Yeah, uh, big we, fan of Ridiculous History. Oh! oh Wait, show everybody. Got the show, t-shirt. show everybody. Show, show, show. Somebody bought one. Holy Thanks, guys. Oh, man. Thanks so much, man. <laughs> wow. You know, they didn't give us free t-shirts. Can you believe that? We no. had to buy our own. Because they print them on demand. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yes, sir. Hello. Hey. Uh-oh. It's oh, a there's switch. a button. Uh-huh. Oh, it's a switch on the bottom. Hello. There, there it is. You, go. you got it. You nailed it. You got it. You got it. Hi. Hello. Um, my name's Kelsey. Um, hey, Kelsey. I have a question in regards to um, our conversation earlier about the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. So the errors that it makes, do you think there's any possibility that good algorithms could offer a level of accountability for what they do? Absolutely. You, you want to bring AI into this? <laughs> It's a slippery slope, my friends. <laughs> it's already there. It's really, it's, that's, a, that's a wonderful question because... It really is a good question. Um, regardless of how someone feels ethically about the concept of machine consciousness, which is not really where we're at now, a machine consciousness would be everybody thinking to some degree the way that we do, uh, but what we have now when we say artificial intelligence is we have things that are very good at solving specific problems. So like we can make the mind of something that could go through a maze or compare columns of data and answer questions in those parameters. We don't have anything that can do something like ask why, right? Are you a data scientist? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm, oh, sorry. Um, I'm a science, technology, and society major. Perfect. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, so, so, the question, so to your question directly, uh, the, the truth is that this sort of technology is inevitable, and in certain spheres, it's much further along than some people might imagine. Uh, in the stock market, in the trading industry, a lot of... Uh, a lot of very quick calculations are made, but they're not made for a greater good. They're made for a profit margin for a specific group or, in some cases, an individual. Well, and there has to be a philosophy behind how you use yeah. the algorithms, too, and that's sort of what the Fed does in some ways. It's like, what is the economic philosophy that right. we're chasing? And yeah. so how do we put these algorithms to work to that end. But it's, it's kind of like the trolley problem with autonomous vehicles, right? So there's a study that came out recently about autonomous self-driving vehicles. The big question is, if they have to hit someone, how do they decide who to hit, right? Is it a, is it, do they, do they hit like an average person walking on the street? Yeah. Or do they hit Hit the elderly? Right. Or do they hit, do they hit a child? Well, it's funny you mention that because I think, I think whoever said that uh, realized that there was a massive poll done recently and our species agreed overwhelmingly hit the elderly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really cool for us right now, but keep in mind, we're going to be old when that stuff's everywhere. So, so that same question applies to the federal reserve. Um, who pro- like who profits from a certain area of stability right if if we can do if if we have an algorithm that tells us uh, an uptick in interest here is very good for this specific part of the economy or this specific demographic they're in, but very bad for another demographic then who who programs it? to value that question, because again, we're a long way off from building an artificial mind that can ask why it's solving a problem. And so if that, if we have something steering the Federal Reserve before it can ask why it's doing something, then we are setting ourselves up for a very 
very interesting times, I believe, is the euphemism. I, I would say the pattern recognition of machine learning could definitely have some help there to try and predict when financial institutions may be weak or be ready to crash or then, you know, how much should the interest rate go up or how little. And you actually have just a machine that's doing that and looking at the patterns and not actually making decisions but giving you feedback. I think that's a really good thing. Also, any, uh, any AI algorithm run on uh, the student loan problem would come to the same conclusions that we came to tonight. I'm just saying that is true. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody else? I see a hand over here. Cool. Oh, I see one over I here, too. Over here. We, we got, we, let's do, we're, we've got one question here first, and then you are next, sir. If yeah. you want to hang out. Uh, big fan. Um, oh, thanks, man. Didn't finish college, so no loans. What? Uh, <laughs> um, but So I love everything conspiracy, everything from aliens, do they exist? What are they really doing on Plum Island? Blah, blah, blah. Oh. <laughs> but okay. this one is the real one if I think you know it affects us in our everyday life and so I've like, dove pretty deep on this and there's all these theories about and I don't know if you guys came across this in your research but um, there were three presidents who made a really really hard push mm -hmm. to get off the Federal Reserve Andrew Jackson Abraham Lincoln okay. John, John F. F. Kennedy executive and they order. all have something in common like executive order 11110 I believe yeah, That's yeah. right right and we're actually our sitting president has made some pretty forward comments about getting off the reserve and make just, forward comments that guy's <laughs> all class <laughs> he has the decorum of a saint but it just it just kind of um, yeah it makes you scratch your head a little bit, and it makes right. you curious, you know, like, maybe there would be a pattern forming if three isn't enough of a pattern. Oh, we got to get up to 13? Well, well yeah, <laughs> 13, right? I would say yet. that some of that executive order stuff and the theories, depending on where you're reading it, it isn't really based on the stuff that it says it's based on. There, it has more to do with, uh, what was it? The, the whole silver standard thing right, is right. a little more murky than what a lot of these websites claim it to be, yeah. um, specifically with Kennedy. Well, also Kennedy had very few friends uh, in, in the halls of power. It's kind of a situation where it's like, well, if he wasn't shot for one thing, here are the other other reasons, other multitudes of reasons that people decided it would be cool if he had a hole in his head, um, which I know is graphic, Damn, but that's man. what happened. That's what happens. That's harsh. That's what happens. But, the, um, but to your question, what's really interesting is Abraham Lincoln actually was, especially during the Civil War, very opposed to the interest rate that the nation was getting saddled with through banking. And it's kind of weird when we read, when it, it's kind of weird what parts of historical anecdotes are specified and what parts, what characters are left blank or vague. Because it's always like, Lincoln was pissed that the U.S. was going to be broke. Hamilton was pissed that the U.S. owed money. To whom? You know? Those people are often named in specific or in particular. And I am going to keep this thought you sent in my head uh, if... <laughs> If, if, if something happens, then, then I think we have a lot of digging to do. But uh, obviously, I don't, I don't personally want just anyone in the world to get shot, although statistically many people did while we were recording the show. 
Too dark? Sorry, guys. Yeah. There are a lot of the guns. Uh, they have to hang out with me all the time. So. The, the, here, yeah. I need another one of these. Yeah, yeah. Let's, 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 let's take one more question, and then we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do one, we'll more, get one more question. One more question. How are we yes, doing, sir. guys? Hey. Hey. Hey, what's up, man? So, first time, first time. So Yes. This was pretty awesome. This was a birthday gift from uh, my friend Aaron. Oh, happy hey. birthday. Thanks, Aaron. Well, and, it's my birthday, so. Oh, okay, happy birthday. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Let's yeah. give it. Hey, what's your. What's your name? Mike. Can, on the count of three, can everybody say happy birthday, Mike? Okay. Well, One, wait, wait, two. Wait, 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 wait. Oh. It's my wife's birthday the same day, too. And her name's Kim. So, Whoa, you, Kim, so on the count of Mike three, happy Kim? birthday, Mike, Mike and Kim. Okay. Yes, right. sir. One, two, three. Happy birthday, Mike, Mike and Kim. Kim. Oh, that was, I, we didn't ask you to howl. That's good. Yeah, Thank let's you. Do it. Thank you very Mike, much. Mike, that was recorded, by the way. We recorded that. It's probably yeah, going to come out. I, trust me, it's being recorded by girl that bought the tickets. Hey. Somebody tackle her. All right. So, what, what, what's up? What's up, birthday man? So here's my question. And I have like 700,000 questions after like being introduced to the world that are you guys. But No oh boy. All right. Here, it's going to be a softball or it's going to be a curveball. So let's see. Let's go. We're, we started about Toynbee Tiles. We started about uh, Hobo Code. How difficult is it to articulate the difference between hobo code and hoda cobe <laughs> that's it that's it it's a bullshit question so thanks guys this oh my fair. gosh thank you just wanted a birthday wish yeah seriously the whole time you were talking i thought it was hoda cobe <laughs> we'll work on that one more, one more yeah uh is there is it a burning question? It's John. Oh, it's John. What's up, John? It's John without an H. John without an H. Thank you. Okay, so about two days ago, three days ago, Ooh. somebody won $1.5 billion, right? Yeah. yeah. Personally, yeah, I wish it was me, but mm -hmm. I think I could do more, more good mm -hmm. with more money than more power. Do you guys think that you could do more good with 1.5 billion in in dollars, or do you guys think you could do more good running a country, running a city? Oh, you're going to get three very more different money answers. Or more power. Well, I, I'll just start off, and then you guys build really fast. I, I think the money is the power in this instance because we've said this before. Ben has uh, this phrase. Um, what is one of the biggest superpowers, the actual real superpower you can have? Oh, yeah, money. Money. Like, it's one of the real superpowers that exists. Because, because Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Can I? Yeah, all right, it's all you. such a nice step. All right, so I, I feel, I, this is one of my three feelings, John. Uh, it's that Batman is often built. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to I'll make it quick. I know we have to pee and stuff. But uh, <laughs> Batman is often built as this amazing superhero because he's the world's greatest detective and because he doesn't have superpowers, he has ingenuity. That is utter, that is an utter line of horseshit because Bruce Wayne is a billionaire. He didn't build the suit himself. He didn't build the Batmobile. Instead, he paid someone to do it, which means that if you look at the way it functions, the use of money is just value over time, so he's functioning as a time traveler. He's doing things through the use of money that would have taken decades, decades and decades to do. So money may not 
equate one-on-one with power in all situations. However, money does equate to taking the hours of someone else's labor, which I'm not, I'm not going in a socialist direction with this. That's just the way, that's just the way it is. If somebody is paid $5 an hour or $45 an hour, then that is just the price of an hour. Do you know what I mean? So I agree a billionaire, with you on yeah. 95% of things yeah. you guys say. I will say, yeah. you guys do say that money corrupts. Yes, right? true. Yes, so true. if you guys were $1.5 billion rich, would that not corrupt you? Of course, oh, the yeah. lottery is terrible yeah. when, for people when they win <laughs> Don't it. Don't win the lottery ever. Like, It'd be the worst just, day of your life. I think it would corrupt me. To well, be honest. I don't know. You seem like a pretty cool dude. I try. But here, here's, here's my reasoning behind this and why I wanted to reference that. Because if you're the leader of a country, there are so many constraints on you on what you can and can't do because there's so many interests that you have to look out for. And that's everything. That's economic. That's the people who live in your country. That's medical. I mean, it's just, it's literally all the things, right, that you have to deal with. If you just independently get several billion dollars, $1.5 billion, you can use that however you want. Really, you can. And then become the president? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, you got to jump through Was a few this more all hopes. a setup Trevor, for that line? That well, that I'm going really to end on one thing, John. I, I think your question, uh, I think I, the more I think about it, I would, I, would go for, I would go for power. Because if money is an idea, then a good idea can beat money. So I would go... I would go for a movement or an idea, not to start a cult. I don't know. What about you, Noel? You want the last word? I'll start a cult. All right. Let's I'm start down. a cult. Hey, you guys. Thank We're you so much. You want to so be much. on a cult? Thank you so much. You heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. 
I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da, 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. 